Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The premed year, session number 283. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. A welcome to The Pre-Med Years. As I said in the beginning, my name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I have an awesome announcement Last year, in 2017, I published the Pre-Med Playbook Guide to the Medical School Interview. It has been well-received. Students have given me great feedback, um, and I'm excited to announce that the Pre-Med Playbook Guide to the MCAT, which will be the second published book in the series, is coming out very, very, very soon. So go to mcatbook.com to be notified when that is available, and, or, or if it is available, by the time you go to that webpage, again, mcatbook.com, you'll be taken to a page where you can learn where to get it. Now, this book will guide you on what the MCAT is, how it's structured, how to best prepare for it, uh, what is a good um, schedule for the last month or so of the exam, lots of tips and tricks on how to use flashcards and how to use the little booklet, and so much more. So again, that's the Pre-Med Playbook Guide to the MCAT at mcatbook.com. My other book, The Pre-Med Playbook Guide to the Medical School Personal Statement, will be out later this year in August. That is available for pre-order. Go check it out at personalstatementbook.com to be notified when that comes out. But you can pre-order the personal statement book at Amazon and Barnes & Noble right now. Today I have an amazing discussion with Dr. William Mayo, or Bill as he goes by. Now Dr. Mayo is the president-elect of the American Osteopathic Association. He graduated from medical school in 1981 from Kansas City University of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences College of Osteopathic Medicine, also known as KCCOM, a lot of people call it. Dr. Mayo is joining me on the podcast to talk about osteopathic medicine, and more importantly, I asked him a lot of questions that you guys have about being an osteopathic medical student. What is the merger going to mean? 
what are we going to do about the stigma or what is there to do about the stigma? Is it really harder to get a residency as an osteopathic student? What should you be doing if you haven't heard of osteopathic medicine before? How do you get exposure and so much more? So hopefully this is a great conversation for you with Dr. Mayo. So let's go ahead and say hello and jump right in. Bill, welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thanks for joining me. Great. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. So you are an ophthalmologist at this point, and you've been practicing for a while. I want to rewind way back in the day when you first realized that, that medicine was your calling. How did you come to find that out? Well, my father was a small town uh, family physician, MD in Mississippi, old style, graduated med school in 1950. And after an internship and a one-year general practice residency, he went out and had the full practice where he saw patients, he delivered babies, he did, he did a lot of surgery, had office hours seven days a week, even on Sunday morning from 7 to 8 in a, in a town of 2,800. And so I grew up in that. My mother died when I was three, so by the time I was four, he was hauling me to the hospital and I was seeing deliveries and all this other stuff. So I grew up in it and it's really all I ever wanted to do. You know, he, he always told me I could do whatever I wanted to do, but that's just what I loved. And, and I still have the same passion for it now that I did when I was, I guess, eight years old. Yeah, that's awesome. Now you, I, I, I want to skip forward a little bit. You um, are a DO. And looking at your bio and, and your history, I, I don't want to age you at all, but you um, graduated medical school in 1981 from an osteopathic school. Now, the DO now obviously is the same as DO then, but, but the thought um, of who DOs are and, and what DOs are was probably different back then. What was your thought process behind going to an osteopathic medical school back then? Sure. Um, well, in, in my case... Um, I had um, applied to to medical school. A uh, little background: uh, like I said my mother died when I was three. My father died when I was sixteen, not quite seventeen. So I um, um, went to summer school right after he died. Finished high school, went right on to college when I was barely seventeen. Mm. Did did not uh, take time to mourn. So my freshman year. I did not do very well in, in school. I had a uh, uh, basically a C plus average, and uh, um, at the end of that year, I uh, wised up, got got busy studying, and did well afterwards. But when I applied to medical school the first year here at the University of Mississippi. Uh, they said, oh, you had a terrible first year. I explained it to them. And they said, yeah, but you had a terrible first year. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. and so, so uh, uh, one of my family members who was a pharmacist said, um, there's a professor in the pharmacy school who has relations with a medical school in Kansas City. Why don't you go talk to him? Mm. So I went and talked to this professor uh, whose name was Dr. Henry Pace, a Ph.D., who, uh, as an aside, I'll say, over his lifetime, he helped over 1,800 people go to either osteopathic or allopathic medical school because uh, he just had a real passion for helping folks. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, he took me up there. 
I, I really knew nothing about osteopathic medicine at that point. I knew it was a medical school, and I knew you're, you could get a license and do same things uh, that I was accustomed to growing up. So I went up there for my interview, and when I did my interview, um, the dean asked me the exact same questions that I've been asked in at the Med Center in Jackson, in Mississippi. And uh, then the dean said, well, you know, that's not bad. It took you one year to get over some really major trauma, and then you proved yourself afterwards. I thought, oh, kind of a different approach here. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. So they accepted me. I, I went to school there. Once I got there, I really came to appreciate the um, the humanistic approach, the holistic approach of osteopathic medicine, you know, really approaching body, mind, and spirit. Um, it was akin to what my father did, you know, without the, without the manipulation part. He didn't know that or do any of that, obviously, as an MD. But the way he approached his patients was what I was doing there. And it was much more about touching the patients, talking and listening to the patients. So that very much body, mind, and spirit approach. So um, that's what drove me there. It was not that I knew a whole lot about osteopathic medicine. I really became an advocate for that approach to medicine uh, because of my experience. It's it's funny listening to that story from almost 37 years ago, 37 years ago. And it's I, I hear from students all the time that have that same that that same exact story today who they don't know what osteopathic medicine is they don't know what a do is and and they apply to medical school and they don't have great grades and somebody says hey you should look at at osteopathic school and they're like what's that and it's so it's it's amazing that there's still even 38 years later there's there's still a lack and i'm trying with all my might bill i'm trying to <laughs> to help increase awareness and and tell students it's the same thing just apply um, right. so I'm trying to do my best. Um, you are a ophthalmologist. Yes. Right. So you grew up, your dad's, uh, this family practice kind of, uh, general medicine doc, and then you go into one of, uh, one of the most competitive, one of the smallest subspecialties out there, uh, both literally organ size and, uh, <laughs> and specialty size. What, what got you interested in ophthalmology? Sure. Um, I uh, was uh, beginning my senior year of med school, and I did an elective in ophthalmology just to be a better family physician. And uh, truthfully, I fell in love with it. As, as a third-year med student, I had spent some time on ENT, ear, nose, and throat service, and really liked the microsurgery, but you know, the, like the, the ear surgery, uh, tympanoplasties, ossicular chain reconstruction, that sort of stuff, I thought was really cool. But there's a part, large parts of ENT that did not appeal to me personally, and I still liked the, uh, the the interaction with the patients in the office on a recurring basis. So, doing this ophthalmology rotation showed me that I actually could have exactly what I liked completely. I could have a microsurgical skill, and at the same time, I could have an office-based practice that was like primary care in that you see them on a recurring basis. You see them, the family from cradle to grave, so grandma and grandbaby and everybody in between. You can have those kinds of relationships that, to me, make for, for better patient care. So I really just sort of fell in love with the field in 1980 as a senior med student, and here it is, 2018, I still love it. Yeah, a lot of students 
who are thinking about osteopathic medical school, thinking about MD school, who may be interested in in a subspecialty like ophthalmology, especially a surgical subspecialty, they they hear all these rumors and they read online that that oh you you aren't competitive enough as a DO to get these tough residency spots. That's now. What was it like again? Almost forty years ago. Well, um, I I had uh, an ACGME residency, so um, I was definitely outside the norm back then. There were when I applied, I, I looked at residencies in my area of the country, so Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama. Really liked the residency program at the University of Mississippi, um, and applied. I, I knew that they didn't know what a DO was. They never had one before. Mm-hmm. But I also believe that that my education was of the same quality and caliber as the students they'd had there. So I was able to arrange for what they now would uh, refer to um, as audition rotations. Uh, they didn't call them that back then, but uh, an elective rotation for two weeks. And uh, in that two-week rotation, they... The, the assignment to the chief resident who really he didn't just he didn't he didn't just check me on my ophthalmology knowledge I mean he was throwing EKGs at me and you know he would ask me about all kind of endocrine stuff or whatever just kind of all over the place yep. so so he could assess where I was because you know did, did my top fifteen percent in the class standing was that parallel or not so um, at the end of it, my, the department chairman called me in and, and told me that I could have a spot if I wanted it. There were 140 people applying for four spots. 139 of them were fixing to be MDs, and then there was me. So I got that one of those four spots. I believed in myself. I believed in my education and my profession. And so a long time ago, you could still do it. You still can, but much more so now. Um, you know, one in four medical students today is an osteopathic medical student. Yep. So it's a big difference. Yeah. The, the general public doesn't know as much, but but in the medical field, they do. Yeah, and I, I think your story highlights what I always try to tell students, whether it's DO versus MD or in the pre-med world, even among MD schools, it's low tier versus high tier. And I try, yeah. I try to teach students, at the end of the day, it's all about you, who you are as a student, what you've accomplished, how obviously how well you've done grade-wise, board-wise, and exactly what you did, how well you perform on those elective rotations. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And when I travel around the country uh, visiting with medical students at the schools now as president-elect of the AOA, that's exactly what I tell them. Yeah, so let's let's talk about President Elect AOA. Congratulations on that. Well, thanks. Um, what what is your role? Um, I, we'll talk a lot more about osteopathic medicine, but I, I want to try to frame that around what your role is as the President Elect. Sure. Well, the uh, the President Elect uh, and the President are, are the two uh, faces, if you will, of the profession. So. Um, we lead the Board of Trustees of the, of the American Osteopathic Association, which uh, um, implements the policies that are informed by resolutions from our House of Delegates. The, the American Osteopathic Association, as well as the American Medical Association, 
each have a House of Delegates that's made up of representatives from each of the states in the country, as well as the specialties. They set the policy for what they believe in and what they, they want to support. So it's up to the Board of Trustees, the President, the President-elect, to carry that out and to address issues in between Houses of Delegates. So um, you know, if there's something going on in Washington, like, uh, like recently the Teaching Health Center Graduate Medical Education Program that we were very strongly supportive of, when we go to Washington and testify to the importance of that when they're looking at the budget, um, reauthorizing the CHIPS program for insurance for children, we were down in Washington advocating for that. So either the president or the president-elect or both will be in Washington to do those sorts of things. In addition, we go and visit with our state societies, our specialty societies, and, we, and, our, and our medical schools to um, make sure that we are communicating what needs to be communicated and that we are listening to so that we're hearing what's going on out there. How much do you interact with the medical schools dictating um, or, or trying to set um, precedents with the types of students they're accepting and, and who the, what types of students you're looking for to be future DOs? Well, um, the way that um, we're structured, um, the president of the AOA during the presidency will um, appoint people to what's called COCAS, the Committee on College Accreditation for Osteopathic Medical Schools. Mm-hmm. The, the and, LCME equivalent. And, and the LCME equivalent, right. Yeah. The LCME is the same sort of thing. Yep. So the, the COCA and LCME have the deeming authority from the U.S. Department of Education to um, basically manage the, the osteopathic or allopathic medical schools. Once the people are on COCA, the American Osteopathic Association has an arm's length relationship with them. So we cannot dictate to them what they will do. Um, we do testify. And then the COCA is meeting again this coming Saturday. And Dr. Mark Baker, who is our current president, will be testifying to COCA about what the AOA would like to see. Um, but it's up to COCA to decide. Um, so that's where we're in terms of what we look for, that, uh, that we're a little limited in, in how we can do that. But our profession in general, though, has been one that looks for that holistic individual. You know, they, they uh, and I'm not using, I'm using just rough numbers. So, you know, somebody that, that maybe has a 3.5 GPA, but they're just really personable. They, they really have the right philosophy um you know that you don't have to have a perfect mcat and a full point uh to be a good doctor that i i I love that outlook and and as the the director of the non-traditional pre-med and medical student society the the old pre-med world the old pre-meds love that philosophy as well among pre-meds right and and the majority of students listening are going to be pre-meds among pre-meds, yeah. that, that thought is, well, students who don't have a good enough GPA, who don't have a good enough MCAT, should apply to DO schools because it's easier to get into medical school. How do you, how do you no. defend that stance? 
It, it is not because it depends on that individual too. Um, mm. I mean, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I had several years ago, a young man came to me and, and wanted to talk to me about getting a letter of recommendation to osteopathic medical school. And he had really good MCAT scores and he had a four point GPA. And after our, I spent maybe an hour and a half just sitting and talking to the young man. But um, I felt like he didn't need to be a DO. Uh, I just didn't think he, he was the kind of person that would be a good doc. He was really bright, no doubt about it. And I wrote a letter for him, but I said, I don't think y'all take it. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... Uh, um, I know he did later getting in, get into an allopathic medical school. He certainly had the credentials, but you know, we, uh, histor- when I have looked at people where I write letters of recommendation, I'm looking at the person. You've got mm-hmm. to have a certain level of grades and a certain level of MCAT to feel like you can make it through the rigors of medical school and your Comlex or USMLE test to be able to get a license to practice medicine yeah once you get past those barriers now we're looking for good people yep yeah the the barrier for me is always do i see you taking care of my my parents right exactly it's that and at my age now i'm looking at going if my kids or my grandkids pop in the er i want you taking care of yep yeah there's always that and and going back to my my flight medicine days my flight surgery days is is if I saw a patient, I'm like, do I really want to fly with you or should I ground yeah. you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what about the student who, who goes to an advisor and, and the student hasn't heard about osteopathic medicine? Application seasons are coming up uh, a month away, a couple weeks away, whatever it is. And the student, let's say the student is a great person. They're going to be in a, a fantastic physician but they've never heard of osteopathic medicine, and they question, why should I apply? And then on top of that, they look at some of the requirements, and osteopathic medical schools, a lot of them highly recommend slash require a letter of recommendation from a DO. How do you get around those two things? Sure. Well, the, uh, if you haven't heard of it, but, but now you're because of your podcast, they're thinking about it, then you can go to the AOA's website um, and and you can um, look up Find Your DO and you can type in a zip code or a city and a mileage perimeter around it and you can find DOs in that area. Mm. And then then it's just a matter of cold calling uh, and asking, hey, could I come shadow you? Uh, and see what it's like. And then out of that can grow a uh, letter of recommendation. I live in a college town. The University of Mississippi, Earl Miss, is here in my town. And I've had many, many students over the years shadow me. Uh, they call generally, generally third year in college uh, pre-med students, and they'll ask if they can shadow me. And then the the... The student will then go on to do some more searching, and then they'll read, well, well, I read that to get a, a good com- uh, a residency, you shouldn't be a DO. There's this negative stigma towards DOs. 
What is your role or the osteopathic world's role in general in trying to reduce and or remove that stigma? Sure. Well, um, just so that that your students understand, um, we, uh, we created this single accreditation system, which is all residencies. Prior to July 1, 2015, there were separate osteopathic residencies that only DOs could get that were in all specialties. And then there were ACGME residencies that both DOs and MDs could get. Um, and we, we, the AOA, along with the AACOM, which is the Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine, uh, had a memorandum of understanding with the ACGME, which was the larger group of residency programs. And we agreed with this memorandum that over a five-year period, we were going to create a single system of residency programs, and we're migrating all of the osteopathic residency programs into the ACGME system. The uh, ACGME was made up of five separate organizations. Now there are seven with the addition of the American Osteopathic Association and the Osteopathic Medical Schools, or AACOM. So each group, once fully functional, has four representatives on the board that runs ACGME. So you've got DOs on the board at the highest level. In addition, what's called a residency review committee, which is a committee made up of specialists in that particular field that review and approve uh, the, all the residency programs in the country in that particular specialty. Every residency review committee that had osteopathic residencies now has DOs on those residency review committees. So you've got DOs and MDs together in the room no matter which room you're in at the ACGME discussing stuff, we're all there together working. So as you said earlier, from a practice standpoint, we're viewed as equivalent. Mm -hmm. There's no discrimination there. Um, there, um, there are, uh, as you said, uh, there are some uh, program directors that may, uh, for whatever reason, have uh, given more preference to one degree as opposed to the other. Uh, but we see those barriers have fallen down over the years. I mean, look at me back in 1981. Yeah. Um, and, and when I look at the University of Mississippi now, there are 30 to 40 DOs there uh, every year in different residency programs. Yeah, and it'll just keep growing and growing as more and, DOs and, and, and are graduating. Right, right. And... Um, in addition, about the uh, the understanding more about the osteopathic profession, we actually uh, you know we've grown so much in the in the uh, last thirty years, but the public was just not as aware of us. So we actually started a brand campaign over three years ago to get the name out for just what osteopathic medicine is and what we do, so that we are. Uh, much more known now. We are continuing that as well so that we are becoming more of a household word. Yeah. And 
and let's I, I wanna I wanna have fun here for a second and please allow me to hopefully this is okay. So mm-hmm. outside of the AOA and AACOM, uh they they're businesses and run as businesses, nonprofit or not. Um what about the argument that says why even have osteopathic medical schools? Let's just convert now that we're going to a single accreditation. Let's convert every medical school in this country to an MD medical school, and we'll have OMM as a fellowship type of system. Well, you know, and, and I have heard that. Uh, you're, you're, you're not the only person to ever say that. Yeah. But, but um, what I would say to that is um, I think that osteopathic medicine has offered something very distinctive with our approach to the patient. You know, it, osteopathic medicine was started by an MD, Andrew Taylor Still. In his era, there were no antibiotics. The, their medicine was very different. They still yeah. used leeches and, and lead patients. <laughs> yeah, all that, that, that kind of stuff they yep. did. He came up with the osteopathic manipulative techniques to enhance the medical care of the day. And when he couldn't get the allopathic medical schools to add it to any of the curriculums, he started his own school because he couldn't get them to add that. Um, But he looked at the body's natural ability to heal itself um, and how do we enhance that and how do we approach wellness and looking at the whole patient, that holistic approach. We still have that and in my perception at least, um, that's something that we still do much more so than the average allopathic medical school does. Um, As Boyd Boozer, who's an immediate past president of the American Osteopathic Association, and he is the dean of the osteopathic school in Kentucky, he says that uh, he would like to see osteopathic medicine be the virulent virus through the ACGME that infects all of medicine and makes all of medicine holistic like we are. Yeah, I've always, I I like how you put that. I've always, um, always pushed back a little bit on the, the marketing of the AOA and, and the osteopathic, osteopathic world about the holistic thing. And, and I, I like your spin on it, your take on it, because it, it kind of defeats my argument because I think a physician, once they figure out, what a great physician does and who a great physician is, every great physician takes on a holistic approach to the patient. And so your take on it is in an osteopathic medical school, we get you thinking about that much sooner than our allopathic friends. Right. And, and there's something too about, um, the difference in the people we take. There was a study that was done on the empathy study. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, Um, but it was, the empathy study, uh, it's an ongoing study now, but it was originally done um, at Cleveland Clinic, and they were comparing um, the, the empathy levels of osteopathic medical students versus allopathic medical students at the beginning. In, in the initial study, they looked at the difference of the two, and they found that there was more empathy among osteopathic medical students than allopathic. There's now actually a longitudinal study going on that's looking and it's using almost all the DO schools and several MD schools and looking longitudinally to see, okay, if they come in more holistic, do they remain 
um, more empathetic and holistic mm. as they progress through the system? Are, are they more alike later, or do, does this group become more empathetic? So they're really looking at it a long term. But there's a, another difference, and it goes back to what you were saying about how the, the people you attract to school. How, how does an osteopathic medical school attract more empathetic students? You know, and that's a good question. I, I don't. <laughs> that's the I secret sauce. That's the secret sauce. I wish I could answer, but uh, um, it's kind of like uh, years ago, uh, the town I live in, one of my one of the orthopedic surgeons here in town had had, had several DO students rotate with him. He says, "Do y'all have a requirement that you got to be nice to go to osteopathic medical school?" <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Looking looking forward for a student who's thinking about applying to medical school or they are applying to medical school or maybe they're in an osteopathic medical school now, this merger, the ACGME or, uh, and AOA and AACOM kind of merger and single accreditation system, what should a student be thinking about, be worried about with all of this change coming? Well, I think that uh, not so much worried about, but... Um, you, you need to be realistic, whether you are going to be a DO or an MD. You need to be realistic about your future practice options because if you are thinking about a high demand special, specialty, um, you know, like dermatology, for example, mm -hmm. uh, if, you're, if you're not near the top of your class and have very good board scores, the odds of getting one are just not as good. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you can't get it, but but to just, but it means you've got to really crank down and and perform perform well to get considered. But there's still the point of, of if you will, selling yourself the audition rotations because yeah. if you get that opportunity, that makes a world of difference. Um, yeah. I know of a, I know of an MD that's. Uh, um, really wanted ophthalmology, but he just couldn't get it initially. So he did his, his uh, transition year, and then he worked for three years, half the time in an urgent care setting, and the other half the time he worked in a university setting doing research in ophthalmology. Mm. And that built his credentials up to where he was able to get that ophthalmology residency that he really wanted. So he was committed to that specialty and what it took to get there. Yeah. And and that's no different than an MD who has poor board scores and wants a competitive right. specialty. That, yeah. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, that, it's that, about that you. Yeah, exactly. It's about you. Yeah. I I gave the example once when we were talking about this um, this merger. I gave the example of a weak DO student, somebody who goes to osteopathic medical school and just doesn't do well. Um, and at the end of the day, they are applying to a relatively easy family practice, internal medicine, whatever it is, uh, non-competitive residency, uh, an osteopathic residency. Now, with this single accreditation, the MDs can also apply to that residency program, and the international MDs can apply to that residency program. So what may have been a shielded spot for a weaker DO student now is going to struggle. So, and again, it comes down to the individual student and how well they do, but I, I think those students are going to be the ones that are most affected. Yeah, and, and what you see each year, there are some students that, 
whether whether we're talking MD or DO, that just don't match yep. for whatever reason. And they end up having to try to get in the match the next year, which is even more challenging. Yep. Um, but I know this the match the matches that just occurred, I believe I believe that I'm not not hundred percent sure, but I believe the number is over ninety-eight percent of DOs matched and um, of the osteopathic residencies that were traditionally osteopathic residencies are now transitioning. Um, you know, already we have um, um, 69% that have, have uh, transitioned over and are either accredited or pre-accredited. And over 50% are actually accredited, so they're already in the ACGME system. Yeah, and and the year 2020 is is when everybody's supposed to be fully accredited? Yeah. Yes, okay. the the agreement is it's July 1, 2020 is when they should all be accredited. Now, there's still the potential that that they could continue to work after that and make it, but that's the window that was created to allow for the transition to occur. And we expect most of our residencies to transition over um, realistically. The, and with the number that we use is based on what was the number July 1, 2015. The, that's the metric that we use every year uh, to compare to. And we know that uh, historically, 40, over the last 10 years, 44 programs closed on average per year. And of course, you had new programs open too. Uh, but you know, for a variety of reasons, maybe they weren't in a popular area or they weren't a popular specialty or... Or maybe they just weren't that good a program. Um, but if they didn't have residents matching them for three years, they'd go away. Yeah. Um, so uh, that trend of 44, that's, that's pretty much stayed the same. Um, since 2015, we've had 119 programs close. So that's keeping right in par with what was happening before that. So we expect over 90% uh, to transition. And uh, when you look at our different specialties, such as a couple of examples, um, anesthesiology, I think over 72% of our anesthesiology residencies are already accredited by the ACGME. Over 80% of our pediatric ones are. Okay. Just, just a couple of examples. Yeah. For, for our friends up north in Canada, students uh, obviously getting into medical school in Canada is very hard and a lot of them look to come to the states for medical school the the feedback that they get for residency if they want to go back to Canada for residency is that osteopathic students are less competitive than even Caribbean MD students what is your role or, or the the AOA's role in spreading the DO love up in Canada and then beyond that in the rest of the world Sure. Well, I know that um, that the AOA's um, legal counsel has worked with the Canadian Osteopathic Association. And of course, they each of their provinces can have different rules as opposed to a national standard um, like we do in the states. Um, but um, in terms of the role, we have been trying to assist them to to get the recognition, and also many of the Canadians stay in the States and do their residencies and then want to go back to Canada to practice. And, mm -hmm. and we, we have tried to work with them. And in some, some of the provinces, you know, they, they had a very easy time. And in, and in others, my, my recollection is that it's been much more of a challenge. 
I am not as versed on uh, everything in Canada as maybe a, one of our, our members who's in Michigan would be, where they have a relationship with the Canadian Association much more so. Yeah. What for the the student now thinking, oh, maybe maybe I should apply to osteopathic medical schools, or maybe they're still on the edge. What are some parting words of wisdom that, that you can do to, to pitch the, the DO world to them? Well, my, my pitch to, to, to anyone who, who wants to be a physician is if you are someone who wants to go into this because your goal is to help people, um, you know, that, that you, you have a servant's heart, that osteopathic medicine is a great field. Um, allopathic medicine is a great field too but in my opinion you need to have that servant's heart um, you know, if, if you're just looking at going into medicine because you think you can make a good living well yeah you, you will make a good living um, but it, that's not what it's about you're there to serve your fellow man um, and I think that both DOs and MDs uh, by and large do a good job of that all right, there you have it. Again, that was Dr. William Mayo, or Bill, as he is known. I hope this podcast, my goal with this specific episode, is to try to, again, reduce the amount of negativity among the pre-med world towards osteopathic schools. The general consensus out there among physicians is that there's no difference. Among pre-med students, DOs are going to osteopathic medical schools only for students who can't get into an MD school. Or applying to a DO school is only something you should do when you don't have a good enough GPA, you don't have a good enough uh, MCAT score. And that's just not the case. As, as Dr. Mayo was saying, if you want to be a great physician, again, apply allopathic and osteopathic with osteopathic schools. I like how he put it, osteopathic schools, starting students a little bit earlier with learning that holistic philosophy, treating patients in more than just what's wrong with them, mind, body, spirit kind of thing. And as I mentioned uh, in the, the interview, I've always been an outspoken critic of the, the philosophy that Osteopathic medical schools and osteopathic physicians are the are, are the only ones that treat patients holistically, and I, I mentioned to to Dr. Mayo that that any good physician will treat patients holistically, and so we, it was a great conversation. Hopefully, you got something out of it, and uh, I hope you have a great week. Again, go check out the pre med playbook guide to the MCAT as soon as you can at mcatbook.com. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the Pre Med Years. Yeah.